All right, everybody, we're running a little bit late, so we probably should get, should get started. Good to see all of you, and for those of you who did not know about our gas problem, that's all been solved. Uh, we had a little gas leak, and so we're glad that uh, Brother Foster really is the one that headlined it, getting it all straightened out, and he used a man in here that would strike a match and hold a cigarette up there to see if it would explode. And so here we are, it worked. Okay? Turn in your Bibles, if you will, just as a head start to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, we read in the scripture, not in this passage, but in 2 Corinthians 5.18, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The King James Version translates it as creature. The word is creation. He is a new creation. The Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. John tells us in 1 John that we are born again by the word of God. Well, all of those kinds of passages imply a radical change in a person. I believe that that change is radical in the sense that uh, when you pass a line, you're no longer where you were. But I also believe that it, it, there's a, a very big uh, What's the word I want? A, a, a perspective of it that it's progressive. In other words, we have a position in Christ. We call that positional sanctification. The scripture says that we are sanctified once and for all in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have a progressive sanctification in the sense that as we learn, and scripture uses terms like growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, as we learn and as we grow and as we know more, the Lord shows us more about what his will is in terms of how we live in this world. And uh, he teaches us and he leads us along by his spirit in his word. So in light of that, I ask this question, and we certainly will not finish this this evening, but it'll be an easy study. It's really easy. We're going to look at some passages of scripture. I'm going to make some comments on them. But here is the question for the study. The theme of this study is in the form of a question. Who am I as a believer in Jesus as the Messiah? Now I'm assuming that all of you know that Messiah is from the Hebrew. It means anointed one. And Christ is from the Greek, it means anointed one. When David talked about being anointed, they would take all the kings and anoint them with oil. And he said, he anoints me with oil, my cup runs over. That word translated anointed with oil is the word from which we get the word Messiah. So the question in this study, the burden of this study, and I say it'd be very simple, straightforward, is who am I as a believer in Jesus as Messiah? In other words, I don't think that we really know half of what Christ has done for us. 
He's done a lot more than we know. And lots of times we're like the man who lived under the bridge in Nashville, Tennessee for over 15 years. And one day they found him, some people were looking for him, they found him, and he didn't know that he inherited over $10 million many years ago and he'd been living like a bum. And we have great blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we go through this world sometimes like spiritual bums. And it's because we don't know what he has done for us. So the question, who am I as a believer in Jesus as Messiah? And I want you to listen to this statement because later, maybe in the next statement, I'll send, uh, in the next study, I'll send them some things they can put up, maybe put up on the board. But here's, here's the answer to that question. I am a Messianic Gentile who has come to Mount Zion and to the altar there. I have been circumcised by Jesus. I have the the Torah or the Torah or the law in my heart. I am a child of Abraham and I am a member of the temple. Jerusalem is my mother and Jesus is my high priest. I have entered into the Sabbath rest. I am a partaker of Israel's spiritual heritage. I am a spiritual Jew and I am classified as belonging to the Israel of God. Now what we're going to do in this study and next Wednesday is we're going to dissect that by looking at some passages of Scripture. And I've asked you to turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. And the first part of that statement is, I am a Messianic Gentile. Now there are a lot of congregations today that worship in the United States and they call themselves Messianic congregations. And most of those Messianic congregations are congregations that have a converted Jew as the teacher or as the pastor or as the leader. And I submit to you that this is a Messianic congregation. If you believe that Jesus is Messiah, if you believe he's the Christ, if you have trusted him, if you're looking to him to save you, not only in this world, but from, from the wrath to come, you are a messianic Gentile. Now here's what it says in, in Romans 15, and I'm going to read it to you from the King James, and then I'm going to read it to you from a translation that I think will help you. Beginning in verse 8. Romans 15, verse 8, I say now that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the Father. Now listen to this translation. I tell you that Christ's life of service was on behalf of the Jews to show that God is faithful to make his promises to their ancestors come true. All right, verse 9. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. 
And again, he saith, verse 10, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, as Isaiah said, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to these verses. I'm just going to start again in verse 8. I tell you that Christ's life of service was on behalf of the Jews to show that God is faithful to make his promises to their ancestors come true and to enable even the Gentiles to praise God for his mercy. As the scripture says, and so I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praise to you. Again, it says rejoice Gentiles with God's people. And again, praise the Lord all Gentiles. Praise him all peoples. And again, as Isaiah said, a descendant of Jesse will appear. He will come to rule the Gentiles and they will put their hope in him. Then he says in verse 13, May God, the source of all hope, fill you with joy and peace by means of your faith in Him so that your hope will continue to grow by the power of the Holy Spirit. I contend that these verses teach us that we are Messianic Gentiles. We are Gentiles who believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah the second part of this verse is, I am a Messianic Gentile who has come to Mount Zion and to the altar. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I'd like to see the machine that they use to cut these Bible pages with. This thing, the pages in this Bible are, are thinner than an onion skin. Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to begin reading in verse 18. Now listen to this statement again. The beginning of this statement, Who am I to believe in Jesus the Messiah? I am a Messianic Gentile who has come to Mount Zion. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. You have not come, as the people of Israel came, to what you can feel, to Mount Sinai with its blazing fire, the darkness and the gloom and the storm, the blast of a trumpet and the sound of a voice. When the people heard the voice, they begged not to hear it, not to hear another word because they could not bear the order which said, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrible that Moses said, I am trembling and I am afraid. But he says, you have come, verse 22, unto Mount Zion. You've come to Mount Zion. When you came to Christ, you came to Mount Zion. A kingdom has a king, and when you come to the king, you're in the kingdom. And wherever the king rules, that's where the kingdom extends. 
Verse 22, you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Verse 23, you have come to a general assembly, the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. You have come, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaks, verse 25. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, God spoke to men on earth through Moses and the prophets. Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven, that is, the, the one who came from heaven and spoke to us, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Whose voice, verse 26, then shook the earth, that is, the Old Testament, when God spoke and the mountain trembled and Sinai shook and there was fire and all of those things, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but I will shake also heaven. And this word, once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Translation, God's going to shake the world in such a way that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. In everything that cannot be shaken, because you're anchored in Christ, you're grounded in Him, they will be exposed as true believers. That's what he's saying here. Then he says, verse 28, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming Fire. So we are Gentiles. I'm a Messianic Gentile who has come to Mount Zion. When I come to Christ, I have come to the spiritual Mount Zion. Hebrews chapter 13. I am a Messianic Gentile who has come to Mount Zion and to the altar. Hebrews chapter 13. The book of Hebrews has uh, been scrutinized for centuries because the question there from Hebrews chapter 6 is whether or not a true believer can fall away from the faith and be lost. And this, this epistle, which many men and women believe were written, was written by the apostle Paul regardless, seems to indicate that that is an impossibility. Because he says, first of all, if you can fall away, it's impossible for you to be renewed. He tells us this in Hebrews chapter 6. He said, if after, well, let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to chapter 12 in just a moment. Let me get my Bible and open it up to Hebrews chapter 6. Years and years ago, we went through the book of Hebrews, and it is, can be in certain parts of it a very difficult uh, book to study, but what I think the burden of it is, is that he puts the fear of God within us, so to speak, 
so that we won't look back. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? Have you ever read Some of you have read that. So, you know, one of the things that the evangelist told the pilgrim was don't look back. Don't look back. You remember what the Lord Jesus said about Lot's wife? He said, remember Lot's wife. What did Lot's wife do? When she was going out of the city, she looked back. Why did she look back? Because she was still in the city, in her heart. She left the city physically, but she never left the city in her heart. And her looking back shows that she was still there, and judgment fell on her. And Jesus said, remember Lot's wife, one of the shortest verses uh, in Scripture. Here, here in Hebrews chapter 6, he says in verse 4, it is impossible, not difficult, but impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. Why is it impossible? Because to renew a person again to repentance who fell away after having come to know the Lord would require a second crucifixion of Christ. That's what he says in the next verse. He says, Seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Christ would have to come back from heaven again, go through all the hell that he went through here, go back to the cross, die again, be buried raised again, raised again from the dead and all of that, if one of his own could fall away. Now the Bible teaches that Christ is the head and his church or his people are what? His body, he's the head in the church, the people who are called the ecclesia, they form his body, right? Okay, if your body is separated from your head, somebody's dead. You can't live being separated from your head. Now, where, wherever Christ is, is where we are. We were so joined to him, and I won't get into all these theories of the atonement, but most of you are, uh, probably have not heard these terms, but there's some of you who have. Terms like supralapsarianism and infralapsarianism. The word lapsus from the, from the Latin has to do with a lapse. Uh, if somebody sends you a bill and said your, uh, your, your loan has lapsed, they mean that you owe a bill, you're behind in your bill. So this lapsus has to do with the fall in the Garden of Eden, okay? Infralapsarianism means something that happened after the fall. Supra, S-U-P-R-A, lapsarianism means something that happened before the fall. Now those two Theological positions of infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism have to do with what's called the order of God's decrees. All of us know that the God of the Bible is a God who knows all things, that he has all power, he's omnipotent, that he is uh, omnipresent, he's present everywhere with all of his being at the same time. There's nothing he doesn't know, there's nothing he can't do, the Lord Jesus said, nothing is impossible with God. He is the God who is almighty. 
Now, we know that God from eternity past knew everything in the future, right? God does not live in time. He lives in eternity. As I've been explaining to you on Sunday, the Lord gave the sun and the moon and the stars and light and day and all of that. He gave that for the marking of times and seasons. We read that in the very first book of Genesis. When he was creating, he said, I can't see what I'm doing. Turn on the light. And there was light, right? He said, let there be light. And there was light. And then he divided the light from the darkness. What was there before there was light? Well, I don't know. I don't know what there was. I think I shared with you last Sunday, I was reading some things about the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second. And this guy said, uh, we got to wondering what the speed of darkness was. <laughs> and he said, I suppose we'd have to say the speed of darkness is the same as the speed of light. Because all we know about darkness is when there's no light, we call it darkness. God created the light, then he created light holders in that order. He created light and light holders, stars, sun, moon, so on, to hold the light. So what did God determine from eternity, and in what order did he determine these things? He determined to create the world. He determined to populate the world. He determined to save some people in the world. He determined to send his son into the world. He determined to send his word into the world. He determined to send the spirit into the world. But in what order did he do all of that? Well, that's the burden of infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism. That is, did he, uh, did, he, did he determine that he was going to save a certain number before he did anything else? Or did he see man as fallen knowing that he would fall. He saw him as fallen and said, I'll have pity and I'll have mercy upon man. Well, we'll have that for another study. The question is this, is God just? Yes, he's just. If you want to know what good is, you study what God does and whatever God does is good. He can't do anything that's not good. When he sent a flood and destroyed the world, that was good. When he created the world, that was good. When he called uh, Abraham, a man out of heathenism, that was good. Everything the Lord does is good. We have to determine what is good by him. So he says here in verse 5, when you've tasted the good word of God, and you've tasted the powers of the world to come, and you've been enlightened with the heavenly gift, and you've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and you can fall away from all of that, it's impossible to renew that person unto repentance. That's what it says in verse 4 and 5. Now actually those verses give us hope. Because see, if you're still interested, even remotely interested, in the state of your soul and in the glory of God and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have not entered into this falling away that is set forth here in Hebrews chapter 6. I can assure you of that. So I am a Messianic Gentile who has come to Mount Zion and I have come to the altar. Let's look at this again, Hebrews chapter 13. I think that's where we were. Hebrews chapter 13. He warns the people in this epistle, this epistle of Hebrews, 
about going back. Don't look back. Don't even think about going back. Don't turn back. Jesus said, he that has put his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. So Hebrews chapter 13, he says in verse 9, Hebrews chapter 13, do not be carried about with many different kinds of strange doctrines. It is a good thing that the heart would be established with grace and not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Then notice verse 10. We have an altar. We have an altar. And notice this. What a shocking thing this is. Whereof they have no right to eat what served the tabernacle. What is he saying? He's saying a priest that still served in the Jewish tabernacle and still brought the blood of bulls and goats and animals have no right to the altar that we have a right to because we don't come to the altar of bulls and goats and bulls. Those are the altars of men's hands, the altar of works. We come to the altar that has the blood of Jesus Christ sprinkled upon it. Notice verse 11. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here, verse 14, we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Now I hope I'm not boring you with reading so much scripture, but I want you to hear this, these, these verses from this English uh, translation. Hebrews chapter 13. I think it will uh, make uh, more sense to you. Uh, like I say, I grew up on the King James Version, and that's the version I still study today, but I also look at other translations and versions to try to get the true meaning of the text. Hebrews 13, verse 9, listen to this now. He says, Do not let all kinds of strange teachings lead you from the right way. Now, what kind of teaching would that be? But that'd be a teaching that would tell you that you can save yourself. That Jesus has just came down here to make it possible. Now listen to me. Nowhere does the Bible teach that Jesus Christ came to make salvation possible. He did not come to make salvation possible. He came to save. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall make it possible for you to be saved. No. He shall save his people from their sins. He came here to save. And was he successful? Yes, he was. He was successful. There's a sense in which we were saved when Christ died. When Christ died, we were saved. All right. He says, let me get back to this passage here. Verse 9. Uh, this print is so small, even with my glasses. Do not let all kinds of strange teachings lead you from the right way. It is good to receive inner strength from God's grace and not by obeying rules about foods. And those who obey these rules have not been helped by them. The priests who serve in the Jewish place of worship have no right 
to eat any of the sacrifice on our altar. The Jewish high priest brings the blood of the animals into the most holy place to offer it as a sacrifice for sins. See, when this epistle was written, the temple was still standing. It was destroyed in 70 AD. Okay? To offer it as a sacrifice for sin, but the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. For this reason, Jesus also died outside the city in order to purify the people from sin with his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp and share his shame. There's a burden for us if we really come to Christ. For there is no permanent city for us here on earth. We're looking for the city which is to come. Let us then always offer praise to God as our sacrifice through Jesus, which is the offering presented by lips that confess him as Lord. Do not forget to do good and help one another because these are the sacrifices that please God. So I am a Messianic Gentile who has come to Mount Zion when I came to Christ and I have come to the spiritual altar and I have been circumcised by the Lord Jesus. Now I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Good time for you to become familiar with your Bible. If you can't find it, just go to the table of contents and see if you can find it. Colossians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 8, Colossians 2 verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has quickened, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Again, let me read it to you. Colossians chapter 2 from this English translation. And listen again. You might want to follow along in your Bible, but this it makes it much more clear. See to it then that no one enslaves you by means of the worthless deceit of human wisdom which comes from the teachings handed down by human beings and from the ruling spirits of the universe, that is, from the demons, and not from Christ. Verse 9, For the full content of divine nature lives in Christ, that is, in His humanity, and you have been given full life in union with Him. He is supreme over every spiritual ruler and authority. In union with Christ, you are circumcised, not with the circumcision that is made by human beings, 
but with the circumcision made by Christ, which consists of being freed from the power of the sinful self. For when you were baptized, you were buried with Christ, and in baptism you were also raised with Christ through your faith in the active power of God who raised him from death. You were at one time spiritually dead because of your sins and because you were Gentiles without the law. But God has now brought you to life with Christ. He has forgiven you all of your sins. He has canceled the unfavorable record of our debts with its binding rules and he has done away with it completely by nailing it to his cross. And on that cross, Christ freed himself from the power of the spiritual rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them by leading them as captives in his victory procession. So don't let anyone make rules about what you eat or about what you drink or about holy days or about the new moon or about festivals or about Sabbaths. All of these things are only shadows of things that were to come. The reality is Christ. You see, we are Messianic Gentiles who have come to Mount Zion. We have come to this altar sprinkled with the blood of Christ, and we've been circumcised by Christ himself. You have to have a circumcised heart, which means your spirit is new, for you to even have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is a gift. All men have not faith, Paul said. Faith is a gift. It is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. All right, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. This will be the simplest lesson I've ever taught. Hebrews chapter 10. I am a Messianic Gentile who has come to Mount Zion and the altar. I have been circumcised by Jesus, and I have the Torah or the Torah or the law in my heart. In Hebrews chapter 10, we'll start reading in verse 11. Let me find it over here in this, in this translation. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. I think I'll just read it so you won't have to hear it twice. I'll read it from this New English translation here. Let's see. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 11. Every Jewish priest performs his service every day and offers the same sacrifices many times, but these sacrifices can never take away sins. Christ, however, offered one sacrifice for sins, an offering that is effective forever, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. There he now waits until God puts all of his enemies as a footstool under his feet. With one sacrifice, then, he has made perfect forever those who are purified from sin. And the Holy Spirit gives us his witness. This is verse 15. First, he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them in the days to come, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their heart and I will write them on their minds. Now, we say we are a new covenant, a new covenant congregation. That verse 16 says in the King James Version, 
This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. Verse 17, and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Now, we say we are a new covenant congregation. One thing we mean by that is we are not under the law. We're not under the law of God. But does that mean we're lawless? No. He puts his law in our hearts and in our spirit. People ask, well, how would you know what sin was if you didn't have a law? How would you know that stealing was wrong if you didn't have a law that said, thou shalt not steal? How would you know that killing is wrong if you don't have a law that says, thou shalt not kill? Well, let me ask you a question. Did Adam and Eve live before the law? How did they know? I tell you what, they were filled with the Spirit of God. They were filled with God's Spirit. Before Adam sinned, he was totally God conscious. He wasn't self-conscious. He wasn't concerned about himself. There wasn't any arguments between Adam and Eve about who's going to be on top and who's going to be on the bottom or who's going to have the authority and who's not going to have the authority. It was none of that because they were filled with the Lord. They were filled with God and with His Spirit. It was after they sinned that they became self-conscious and concerned with self. So what I'm saying, it is the Spirit of the Lord in the beginning that taught men what was right and wrong. He only codified the law in order to make sure that men knew that they were sinners because one, one thing that characterizes all fallen men is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. And so you need the Spirit of God and the law of God that tells us that we're sinners. Once we come to Christ, we are not under that law. We are under Him, but we still are not lawless because He has put His law in our hearts and in our spirits. That's the law of the new covenant, verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days. I will put my laws in their hearts, in their minds, I will write them. In fact, you could say, in a sense, that we're under a higher standard of law than they were who were under the law of Moses. All right, just another point, and we'll be done for this evening. Galatians chapter 3. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> I hope this is making sense to you. I just want to open up this, this long quote about what we have in Christ. And then in the next study, if I can get through with this part of it, I think I can make it make sense to you a little bit more than tonight. Galatians chapter 3. I am a Messianic Gentile who has come to Mount Zion and to the altar, sprinkled with the blood of Christ. I've been circumcised by Jesus. I have the Torah in my heart, and I am a child of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, the scripture has concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Verse 23. Before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterward be revealed. 
Wherefore the law was our pedagogos, our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now let me just make a comment here. We can discuss this maybe at a later time, have, have a time for questions and answers. When it says the law was our schoolmaster, the sense in which he is saying the law was our schoolmaster was this. When you're born into the world, you're just an infant. And when you grow up, you, God gives you moms and dads. He gives you teachers. He gives you instructors. He gives you things that show you the parameter, the people and laws and rules that show you the parameters of uh, life. When you grow up, maybe you can't go into the next room. And then when you're a year or so old, mom lets you go into the next room. Then she lets you go to the back of the house. Then she lets you go out in the yard. Then she gets to go to the backyard. And then when you're a few years old, you can go over to your neighbor's yard. But you can't do certain things until you have grown up. Now what this says is that God gave the law to keep even those of his children who were his spiritual children to give them parameters to keep them until Christ came. Not that he sent the law just to show you you were sinners, though he did that, but you are under the law until the time when Christ came in history. When Christ came in history, that we might be justified by faith in him, that law for the children of God, for those who were children of God, uh, was, was no longer applicable. But then their, their lawyer, their, uh, their king, their ruler is Christ. So Christ becomes your lawgiver. If you have never read uh, John Riesinger's book on the tablets of stone, uh, but I say unto you, uh, Christ the lawgiver, I'll try to get those for you if you're interested. It will really revolutionize the way you see your salvation. So he says here that I'm a child of Abraham, Verse 23, before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should have to be revealed. So our law was our schoolmaster. Verse 24, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For you are all, verse 26, you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many as you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ. It doesn't mean that your roles in life are done away with, but it means that your positions in Christ, there's no difference. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed, and you are heirs according to the promise. This version... Um, the English version here says this. I want to read it to you. Verse 26, It is through faith that all of you are God's children in union with Christ. You were baptized into union with Christ. Now you're clothed, so to speak, with the life of Christ himself. So there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles, between slaves and free people, between men and women. You're all one in union with Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are the descendants of Abraham, and you will receive what God has promised. What was the thing that God promised Abraham? Well, he promised him righteousness through faith. He promised him a new land. We know that Abraham 
didn't just look for land here because we're told in the book of Hebrews, he looked for a city that has foundations laid by God. He looked for a city that God built. He was not looking for a place to settle down here. So I'm a Messianic Gentile who's come to Mount Zion and to the altar sprinkled by blood. I've been circumcised by Jesus. I have the law in my heart. I'm a child of Abraham. And I'll tell you next time, I'm a member of the temple and Jerusalem is my mother. Now, this is the essence, I think, a different way of putting it, of what we call the new covenant. We're new creatures in Christ. And as we have taught here for years and years and years, once the Lord takes you into his family, he doesn't kick you out. He will deal with you if we wander, if we stray, if we fall, but he doesn't disown us. I believe that the scripture teaches, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, where I read, I read that passage every uh, first Sunday of the month when we have the Lord's Supper. And in that passage, Paul says there that God has removed some of his children from this world because of sin. He's removed them. He's taken them out of the world. He doesn't kick them into hell, but he, he dealt with them so severely in discipline that he took them out of the world. And Paul says in that passage, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And I point out to you all the time that the judgment there is not a final judgment. It is a chastening, the chastening hand of the Lord, <clears throat> which he goes on to say, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be chastened of the Lord. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for sending your Son into the world, sending your Spirit to call us to him, giving us a hope and a foundation to stand upon, knowing that he who loved us and gave himself for us will not lose us, for he shed his own blood for our souls. And we know that the price of his blood cannot be estimated. We, we stand in him. We stand before you in him, perfect. In ourselves and in this world, we still fall short. We're just sinners and we are utterly sinful from the crown of our head to the soles of our feet. But in our positions in Christ, when he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. And when he rose again, we rose with him. And now we sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Help us to see and to know and to understand all that you've done for us and all that you've given to us, that we might live victoriously in this world, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the great joy that was set before him despised the shame and is now set down at thy right hand. Lord, help us as this world grows darker to be always looking to you, and walking in your light. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it for his sake. Amen.